Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. I'm Wen Lei. I own a restaurant called Ba'u in Los Angeles. I'm also the chef there, which serves um, Vietnamese street food and comfort food. I was born in Vietnam, in Saigon, and I currently live in Los Angeles. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? I'm very proud of my heritage, of where I come from, and I think the meaning of being part of also a refugee community has strong significance to me, um, considering nowadays with these many different refugee crises happening across the world um, through war, through climate issues, through economic issues, that um, I feel that there's a, it's very important to me my heritage of where I come from, and I often channel it a lot when I'm just um, operating my business or when I'm trying to engage in society, that it's a big part of who I am. This idea of uh, being a refugee and, and being very aware of this, uh, as we'll talk about in, you know, in this uh, episode, when did you think you started to kind of pay attention to that? I think that for me, it started very early. I moved from uh, Vietnam to the U.S. when I was seven. We came as um, uh, through the humanitarian operation program. We call it HEPO because my dad was a prisoner of war for almost six years, which then when he got out and they, the U.S. came up with a program where you and your immediate family can come essentially refugee to the United States that I felt um, very strongly connected to Vietnam because I had significant memories of it. Then coming to America with issues of integrating into society, of not learning, of not knowing English yet and remembering what it felt like, try to learn it, of having my family kind of come in waves, having come before that and then also after that and kind of anchoring ourselves in the Los Angeles and Orange County area that I've always felt very much um, part of the immigrant experience, I think, and part of the immigrant experience where you're not necessarily um, leaving the country because you don't want to be there, um, but leaving because you feel like you don't necessarily have the opportunities and felt like you needed to go somewhere else in order to find those. And I think my parents felt that very strongly when they came here and, you know, kind of started at the bottom again. Yeah, that experience of, you know, like from your family or my family, it's very different 
because uh, I think, you know, coming out of the the camps, the re-education camps, you are branded as something, your family's branded as something. It, the the social implications are different for, for people of that time period to come out of the camps because you just, you're branded as in Hawaii at the time, which is... Uh, your, your whole family, you can't really, there's no upward mobility at that point, right? Yeah, and my dad was um, an administrator in Pleiku, which is kind of like in the central highlands. Mm -hmm. And he was a city administrator and his job actually was to work with um, the multiple ethnic communities of which there are many in Vietnam to kind of show mm. them what fair trade looks like and so that they weren't being taken advantage of. So he had this very sort of like social justice oriented administrative mm. job, but because he worked in the government, in the South Vietnamese government, essentially, that's what um, prompted him to be put into the re-education camps, which, you know, he doesn't talk about a lot but when he does, you know, there are these just stories of like being in the jungle and like having to build your own prison shelters, essentially um, a lot of disease, a lot of starvation. And um, it's one of those things where, you know, that that stuff gets embedded into yeah. you, I think. And and even when you're out of that environment and, and my sister was born, um, either right before, right at, actually right before he went. And so for the first six years of her life, my mom is raising my sister on her own essentially, and then taking like coal fuel trucks through the jungle to visit my dad when she can. And so that, you know, it's, it's just sort of like part of my family's history that even though we're in the United States, it's, it's sort of, um, so formative, I think, and and part of like even when you leave and you're still in Vietnam, I think, you know, it was hard to, and I can't put words into my parents' mouths because I'm, I couldn't imagine what they went through, you know. But I think it's hard to just sort of try to reintegrate yourself into that society and trying to feel like satisfied and feeling like not a sense of, you know, anger or bitterness, you know towards the people yeah. who are in who are leading your government or your society. You know, uh, an interesting point that it's tangential kind of to this conversation, but an interesting point is um, what you just said about like anger towards the the government. Uh, you know, that word that I just used in way, uh, is the way that they branded the, you know, the former government. That word is sort of outlawed now it's not uh, allowed to be used to talk about the other side because it creates a political sort of rift between, you know, the Viet that come back and, and, and the, you know, I mean, we are children of Nguyi, right? And mm -hmm. so now that there is this sort of like, um, I don't know if it's a formal policy or, but it's not, that word is not used, no longer used, and it's outright banned in, in the press. So it's very interesting um, how these things, you know, affect millions of people. And at the same time, you know, they can just be changed and uh, and lives are changed 
you know, radically as a as a result of you know words that 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 are used in in generations uh, ahead or before us. Yeah, you know, I, I had no idea that that word is sort of not being used. Anymore. Yeah, but it makes sense because then you alienate the kids, you know, the children of the kids, the the children of the of the people that you you know banished, uh, and they're the lifeblood of change and life blood of improvement alongside uh, of the 98 million in country that, you know, so we're all working in tandem to kind of make a better Vietnam um, all around the world. I feel like that's sort of like the, the, the overall mission of everybody now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I love going back to Vietnam. Um, my, my dad, I think was very reluctant at first, especially. You know, he waited until um, he got his citizenship papers, not even just the legal residency, but the citizenship. He needed to make sure. He's like, going back. Yeah. You know? He's like, I'm um, not joking around. I need to I need to make sure I have a place to go. <laughs> Somebody's taking yeah, me back. Exactly yeah. that, that, you know, um, and I, I think that there's so much that we have, you know, in common globally, um, you know, the Vietnamese diaspora and folks in Vietnam right now that um, maybe, when did I come, like three decades ago, mm -hmm. that it was unclear, you know, that yeah. we'd be able to build this bond together. Yeah, it's strange to think about, like the first 10 years of my life, there was very little communication. In the first few years, like maybe, two, three years, there was no communication. Then it became like, we had a communication, but it's very expensive communication. If you went to phone home or letters would take months or weeks or whatever. So, you know, and things change. And now it's instant, you know, my brothers lived there for 18 years. And, you know, if I need anything, I literally just text them, like, hey, can you get on a call? And we were on the phone and we're talking. And that's yeah. been going on for 18 years. <laughs> it's crazy to think about yeah. it. It is really crazy to think about. I, yeah. I really could have not necessarily anticipated that world, you know, like yeah. Benton going in the 90s and everything too, which is after we came to America. And then, you know, it's sort of like, oh, wow, like this is happening now. Like it was, yeah. you know, the, it was so, I guess it feels so long ago, but at that time when it was happening, I remember thinking like, wow, this is incredibly incredibly significant and an incredibly thorny issue in Vietnamese America when it was happening as well. Yeah. And I feel like all that stuff that's going on in Ukraine and Russia right now, it's like, I feel like I wish I could just get on a loudspeaker and tell everybody it's going to be okay. Eventually. I know a lot of people is dying. You know, we've had millions of people die and, but ultimately, you know, they're living in a different um, time period where there's communication, you're not going to lose contact with your family, you know, you're always going to be connected somehow through Facebook or some social media, we didn't have that. And it took us years to reconnect with family and, and, and get that all situated. But in Ukraine, you know, it's like uh, the modern, but I can't even believe this is happening right now. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy as shit. It's, it's so crazy. It's sort yeah. of like, <laughs> you know, there are all these assumptions about lines people will not cross yeah. or lines that you don't think people will cross that, you know, in these modern times that we have these certain rules of decency and rules of how you just 
treat other human beings and you know sovereignty of other people's self-determination and i yeah it's it's sort of shocking yeah. you know to, to even be like can't believe this is happening and and how can this s world that we live in and and um yeah i i'm you know it's i bizarre. think bizarre their yeah. heads around it so bizarre um when you were coming up uh i you know once you left vietnam um, and you got to the United States, what was going on in your mind? Um, I, I remember that it was not a smooth, necessarily a smooth trip. And, and, you know, we flew over, but at first we were put into sort of like a dormitory style place in Thailand where they teach you, um, or, or where they help to like integrate you into American society essentially by um, providing you with like foods they eat in America. And then I'm sure there's like paperwork and other things involved, but I was seven. So I don't know, really know that part, but then they, they had these screens that they would like project up things like um, don't point with your middle finger in America. Like, you know, that's inappropriate because you know, it's really bad thing. But if somebody does this to you, which in Vietnam means a really yeah. bad thing, but in America means good luck. Like, don't get mad, you know, like just stuff like that. And then like battered fried chicken. I remember that being just such like a delay, like a battered fried drumstick, you know, it was like not something we ate in Vietnam at that point, um, but was something they were trying to introduce us to. So I remember this just being sort of a pretty bizarre part of like, what's happening here? Like, like, you know, like, where are we going? But this is important. Why are we staying in like bunk beds with like all of these other families in a giant room, you know, like, yeah. And then, um, we, uh, then my brother actually, um, had a panic attack on the plane. He's a few years older, very active imagination. And he'd kind of like heard these kind of horror stories about America, et cetera. And so then they, we had to like land in somewhere in Japan and the, 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 the um, medics had to come and like rush him off the plane. And we all like ran after him through the airport because, you know, he's imagining that the chairs were coming up and flying towards him and that we were going to go to this place. And it was just like dangerous and, you know, full of these. So, and so that was sort of kind of how it started. And then finally we got, we got to the U S after this, and, um, and, you know, it was like LAX and, and we had family there like awaiting us, but it was just like, just sparkling and like big. And it was at night. So there were just so many cars, you know, which I was, I just was not used to that. Um, and since my family lived in West Covina at that point, it was a long drive from LAX yeah. in traffic. And so you just see the tail lights on one side and the headlights on the others of the freeway. And, um, and then like, I, I, I was motion sick and I held out in just about like two, three minutes before we actually got there. I was like, we have to pull over. So then I like threw up and like, just like two, three minutes before we got to the house. And so, um, that, that was, I guess the first, that, that was the trip from Vietnam to America. Um, but I, I started, we came in September. So I started like second grade in elementary school. Basically. What year was that? 
This was 1991. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I started second grade, like pretty much at the beginning of the school year. So, um, that part did not feel strange. Like I didn't like, you know, I like completed first grade, we had the summer and then I was able to go and start second grade. Sec starting school in America is strange, but at least my sort of school cycle itself felt like, okay, this is just sort of the next step. Right, you know? right. So there was no kind of break or anything. It was just like, you just got right into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess so. Um, I, I remember learning English um, and being very challenged by it. Um, but, you know, a lot of people say now and, and, you know, they mean it as a compliment and I guess it is one, but like, oh, like you don't have an accent, you know? And, and I always found that to be sort of like, just like, oh, like, that's so good, you know? And I just remember being a bit frustrated still am by that statement when everybody when anybody says it and it's like like what do you mean you know like what does a person like what's wrong with a person with an accent kind of and um and because you know i have family who came a bit later than me who you know when you speak you can tell they were born out of the country and when i do um you can't You know, but it's just, it's something that, you know, you can hear, but it's not necessarily something I think people should like be bringing up. It's like, this is better than that. And I feel like in the tone and the ways people say it, that's sort of how. It's interesting because, you know, like, and I, and I understand where you're coming from, but, you know, if you were Italian, people wouldn't say it, right? People are like, oh, my God, your accent's so beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's part of the thing that sort of like, upsets me you know is like oh you managed to like shed this old world where you would be marked as something lesser than and you've adopted this new world fully in a way that we can't tell you know that you used to be part of this lesser than group or something and i, I think that's the part that you know is sort of the discrimination when you have an accent that sounds like it comes from a certain country versus another Well, one. I'm going to admit, I'm going to openly admit that I used to think that I used to think that like if I was sitting here with you 15 years ago, I would be like, oh, when I'm so impressed, you lost your your accent. Right. And I've I've probably made that statement countless times in my life growing up, you know, and measuring people, you know, accordingly to to to, you know, that little nuance of like their language skills you know so i get what you mean by that and i also think you know there's so much implied meaning there from who says it how it's being said and all of it and and you're right i mean that has to eventually change and i don't i think that the answer to that is like the more we kick ass and the more we just do the work that we we love doing uh and we show the world and the humanity that is just human beings that eventually those things sort of fall fall to the wayside Yeah. at Yeah. least that's what i hope And i don't know that's my hope I, I, I hope so too. I hope so too. And, um, you know, and then I try to kind of address it in myself. Like, you know, I, I listen to a lot of radio, you know, which is like, all you can hear is like the voice, 
right? And yes. and and I really try to listen and be like, okay, what is the intent of what this person is saying? You know, what is the meaning of what they're saying? Like, it might not be packaged in a way that might be as you know academically rigorous or it might not be packaged in a way that sounds like the news media's english etc but you know what is kind of like their intention of what they're trying to communicate and what is the meaning here and like what is the depth in that you know and and i so i i guess having kind of grown up the way i did have always taken this extra step as a result to really you know, not judge people by necessarily the words they use or how they say it, but what they're intending, like trying to communicate. Mm. You know, that's like another level of evolution to me, like that way of thinking that you just described, you know, and when I think about my work, uh, sitting here talking to somebody like you, and I I, I always like think like in another year, I'm going to look, listen back and I'm going to think how cringy this is for me because, <laughs> because, you know, here's what happens. Inevitably, there's growth in everybody like me because I come from a very, you know, a place of not knowing a whole lot. And then I get to sit with somebody like you who I've prepared these like superficial questions. And I think like I'm going to do my best and, you know, and then I find out like, holy shit there's like layers to this person like what you just said there's intent there's like these ideas that i'm not even scratching the surface with you you know and that's what scares the shit out of me when i'm up <laughs> on the mic with people you know it's like you know because i look you know you know you, you do the best work you, that you can in life and you just kind of like open up and be like okay the vulnerability of like in a year from now just discovering like win is uh, you know it's just another level of of thinking that i never even got to really question and experience right and i find that a lot like when i listen back to my uh my episodes i'm like oh my god this is so cringy but you know what I, it's i just have to accept the growth that uh comes with it and not be so egotistical and just you know roll with it right now but um as i've you know uh researched more about your life and your work i'm like oh my god this is not just about food this is about something much much bigger in your life you know yeah i mean uh, i i have to give you so much credit for even doing this because you know it's the courage of putting yourself out there and then the courage of like i mean you know people who broadcast i think have to do this sort of like self editing in this way that's very in the moment um you know, it's like, it's, it's a special skill. I, I haven't been interviewed a ton, you know, at all. And um, just from my experience, when it's, when it's somebody who's like doing the question asking, that's like so much pressure, right? I just sort of like, get to like, draw from my experiences. But here you are having to like tie these threads together and stuff like that. So it, much respect. And, oh, thank and, you. you know, everybody visits stuff they did in the past. I don't I think that's totally normal. <laughs> thank you. It's frightening, though, like, uh, you know, the growth and it's incremental. It's tiny incremental steps to get better at this. It's like it's uh, it's like being a musician and you're like there's levels to playing the piano or singing. You know, it's just not what you hear on Lady Gaga is not just, you know, 
it's not just one or two years it's like years of yeah. layering skills and um and doing that and I, and and one thing i that i look forward to is um talking with you because i think about this this is what makes it hopeful is actually seeing how you unfurl the the trajectory of your your mission in life and now i do want to get to how you got to sort of where you are today with um the, the, the work that you've done. Um, I, and I want to get into the, the seed of where it came from, maybe perhaps uh, high school, but I'm hearing it, you know, your father and Pleiku, but maybe get into more of like the practical side of, you know, when you were coming up, did you come into contact with anybody like a Cesar Chavez or somebody who you inspire, who inspired you? Yeah. Um, I, I draw a lot of inspiration from my mom, actually. And, um, you know, when we first came to America, we, she, I have to like go back to Vietnam again, is she got her pharmacy degree in Vietnam um, right before 1975. And so, you know, after that, she wasn't able to practice pharmaceuticals um, or become a pharmacist, even though she had a degree. And so um, while my dad was like in prison and like after he got out, um, you know, he wasn't necessarily able, like you're talking about, to, to gain a lot of economic opportunities. And my mom had basically like apprenticed with a toy maker that makes plastic press toys like little cars wow. like little things like that yeah um and then um eventually they were able to open up a small toy pressing factory and so that was the environment i grew up in is my parents researching like what are what are tiny plastic things that we can press and then they would like do it and there'd just be like little balls of different colored plastics everywhere, you know? And then um, then they would make it and then they would sell it at Jalam, which is in, you know, it's in, it's in Saigon area. Um, but I remember going with them, just having these huge bags, you know, on, on the back of our motorcycle. And it'd be like me, my dad, my mom and huge bags and just kind of being in that market environment. And, and that was the drew inspiration, I think from that and from there, they were able to expand their factory, but my mom was able to also teach my uncles the business, her brothers. And so um, then they sort of did their own toy making businesses in Vietnam and, um, and, and still, you know, and, and were able to kind of build, you know, income for their families, et cetera, throughout the 90s and the 2000s. Are they result. still doing but, that? Um, to a certain extent, but um, not not really. One of my uncles has passed. My mom's like 72. One of my uncles has passed and the other one lives in America now, but that kind of like factory still sort of exists to a certain extent, you know? Um, but, you know, she was the one that built it. She was the youngest too in her family. And, um, <coughs> you know, when we got to America, we started kind of like, started over and um but 
there was at UCI was a teacher who was um, teaching classes so that pharmacists could get their equivalency degrees because at that point American needed pharmacists. And so they were willing to accept degrees from other countries as long as you pass like the English proficiency uh, tests like TOEFL and then the board exams. Um, but you know, that's like a lot of studying and yeah. this teacher was willing to do it for free and kind of like brought all these different Vietnamese pharmacists um, from all over the place in order to go there and learn, but it took years, but you know, he like had the materials and everything for people. And so I remember us kind of like doing like garment work at home where my mom would sew and like cut the pieces into the patterns and stuff. And we'd all cut threads off the clothes, but the whole time, you know, it's just like also at other times her face was just buried in all of these materials and stuff like that. And um, it took like maybe six or seven years um, in, in between of which they found like a tumor in her, in her um, chest that they thought might be cancer. Like it was a very high chance of cancer. And so it was just like, you know, this woman's just been through like yeah. so many things. Like, you know, even from, you know, like she got shrapnels in like in the fifties cause they were in the field. And then, um, you know, this was, not the war we call the Vietnam War here in the U.S., but this was, you know, with the French, and um, and she got shrapnel, and um, I think she was three or four, and then they found she was doing an MRI in America, and her thigh really hurt, but of course she didn't say anything, and then after that was where they found out there was still a piece inside of her, you know, decades later, but I guess all that to say that. Um, that it's just, I think there's a resilience to my family, but especially demonstrated through my mom's um, experience and her actions that I've always kind of taken with me to be like, well, you know, like you never know what's gonna happen in life, but you have to yeah. figure out how to just move forward. You have to figure out how to thrive in whatever environment you find yourself in. but. Um, you know, she also just has this like huge heart where it was where, you know, she'd just be willing to really do anything for anybody. And and in return, you know, like she's able to really just like make these huge asks of people where they will actually say yes, you know, and that taught me a lot too. you know, like kind of the beauty of like asking for help. Like what, what's, what's an example of it? Oh, I don't like, um, you know, like just the process of like trying to pool together money when you're not really bankable, you know, um, in order to, you know, open up a business or like start to invest in property or to, um, you know, like, uh, pull together donations for things that happen like in like my dad's hometown or whatever that you know she's somebody that is like um like a natural organizer in a way like like a family organizer sort of a community organizer somebody where um you know like you 
you call on them to to figure out how you're going to make it in America, where you're going to be able to stay, um, you know, how do you find a job, et cetera. That's just somebody that like sort of pulls those threads together and it's not necessarily her doing all of it. Cause she's like, she's like four foot 10, you know, and not always in the best state of health, but something about the gravity of the ambition of what she feels she's capable of and her family's capable of and what our community's capable of that I think sort of just brings other people in and was like, and would just be like, okay, well, you know, like you helped me out back then when I really needed it. And now you're asking for something and it might be like a bigger ass than anything anybody's ever asked me before, but I'm just going to try to get this done and we'll get it done together. And, um, and I find those traits to be incredibly um, admirable for anyone. I think for a woman who grew up without indoor plumbing, you know, without electricity in the Mekong Delta to kind of like be here now and have done all of the things she has in her life and to have gone through all of it. Excuse me. kind of puts in a perspective I guess like you know like I'm capable of so much like I came from this you know that's a gift it's a gift from yeah. you know from our moms and our dads that have gone through such horrific experiences and unfortunately I think today we in America we grow up with none of those gifts, the gifts of hardship. And it's just making all of us go haywire. It's like we're not, <laughs> we're not, it's like our, our ability to, I mean, I'm not talking about you and me, but I kind of, you know, like my children and the mm -hmm. generations that don't have the hardships, I, I, I hope that they find other hardships and I hope that, you know, the struggle of being human is something that they have to contend with and make them stronger. But the, the gift of war, um, whether we are on the wherever end you're on, um, the gift of being products of war uh, is, is a special thing that, you know, you can't you can't ask the universe for or you can't want to be in that because it's a hor hor horrible, horrific place to be but I think a lot of the outcomes of the Vietnamese refugees that that lived through it um, the fortunate ones that have made it through it um, oftentimes uh, you know like your mom they you know give just amazing gifts that allow you to see the society around you in a different way and move you in a different way to do bigger things for Mexicans in LA right I mean or Americans in LA, it just transfers that energy into a very unique story uh, that um, that you've lived on a practical level. Yeah. Um, so you went to high school in like La Puente or or um, West Covina. West Covina. West Covina, and yeah. and in high school, uh, you know, you have to have plans to kind of like where are you going and you know in your mind I, I imagine your mother's a pharmacist and had that training 
and you're you know did you buck that system did you go i'm going another way or were you like okay that makes sense let me follow that path i um you know it's it's funny being a queer kid going to school in the late 90s which is i graduated high school in 2002 um and and i guess everybody has you know these like formative periods of their life but um you know i was deeply influenced by social justice work kind of like when you grow up so kind of like outside of these norms you realize that like being othered and being different um often comes with a lot of risks and i just always felt it in my bones you know i'm i'm also left-handed i'm like queer you know Me i'm too. like i'm left-handed too <laughs> i'm like a refugee you know i'm like english as a second language and i never really quite felt like these systems even though i was able to manipulate them like academic systems and school and such i i always felt that they were incredibly unjust and that they really created classes of haves and have nots of privilege and justified it by, you know, SAT scores or grades. Um, and that uh, so much of people's uh, real intelligence and, and real emotional intelligence was not being focused on and um that that i just somehow felt drawn to like being like oh there's so much inequality in the world it's so unjust like and so i always felt drawn to like going into like um politics or law at that point um and and not into pharmacy but you know, I remember very clearly, and I think everybody that has lived long enough to remember does, but, you know, 9-11, 2001, um, uh, was my junior year of high school. And I can say that my life has not been the same since, you know, like between that and, you know, again, the starting of these endless wars when you know, before that, it was like the Vietnam War, you know, and then we lost that one. And then, you know, we're just kind of engaging in these battles and stuff, but then kind of gets drawn out. And then, you know, it's like that that happened um, when I was in high school. And then when I was in college was, you know, the Iraq War and weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. And um, I... I was arrested, you know, for protesting that when I went to Berkeley. Um, but I just felt drawn to these kind of causes. I did a lot of um, activism regarding affirmative action and how I felt deep inside that like our college admission system was deeply flawed and that folks who had the most advantages were getting in and it was being justified um, in these ways that somehow they had more merit. And I just didn't think that was true. Um, and then Hurricane Katrina happened, um, and, uh, 
and that really like I didn't know there were that many Vietnamese people in the Gulf Coast. I just had no idea. But just learning about it just sort of like took me to this place where I felt very compelled to act. Like and and you know, at that point it was just like I didn't know what to do. I was just going down to film a documentary um for an ethnic studies film class at Berkeley. And I wasn't even in the class. I was just like had a passion for it and so my but I also spoke Vietnamese you know and so I my friends brought me down and um you know kind of one thing after another but I I ended up getting independent study units and staying down there for over a year in New Orleans and East Biloxi where I really um kind of was I think more able to build this bridge between my passion for social justice and my Vietnamese American identity um, in a way with my progressive values. Because quite honestly, um, I felt like I was silencing myself so much mm. in the company of other Vietnamese people because of my progressive politics when I was growing up um including just a lot of disagreement you know in my own family right that i was just exhausted like i don't i don't want to work in this community that one won't accept me and two is so conservative as to support these awful causes and policies you know like i just but with hurricane katrina and the way it kind of just like brought us all together around like not just you know not just the Vietnam War and not just homeland politics and not just kind of like Republican versus Democrats, but this is like real people that just impacted, need, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like, we need to get stuff done and they need to have a voice in how their communities rebuilt and they need to be able to have opportunities and access to the short-term recovery, but also the long-term redevelopment and that's not negotiable and everybody can agree on that. And we need to do it and organize it in a way where we're not just doing it like as a Vietnamese community, but these other communities impacted too and to kind of build coalitions around ethnic communities, but also multi-issues like environment, economics, social justice. And I, I finally just felt like I could like bridge that gap with my Vietnamese identity. And I think that was mm -hmm. really when I was like, okay, like this can work. It's challenging, but I can't just hold this kind of Vietnamese community work side at arm's length anymore, even though there were still so many inherent risks, you know, of engaging in that community as sort of a queer progressive person. Um, but yeah. So when you finally get to the Gulf Coast and you, you know, roll your sleeves up and you start really um, activating and, and, and doing the work down there, did you find that your identity, your queer identity, your Vietnamese identity, did any of that matter to the people, the Vietnamese community down there? It's, I, 
it's interesting because in the Gulf Coast, you know, there are multiple Vietnamese American communities, mm -hmm. each with kind of their own settlement histories. And um, <clears throat> when I first came down after I did the film and then like went back to Berkeley and then came down again for, it's called the Young Tongue Fellowship, um, which I guess means something like without self or like with, you know, like, um, through, it was through an organization called Navasa, National Association of Vietnamese American Service Agencies. Um, but it was like a year fellowship and I was first placed in New Orleans um, and, and the New Orleans East community is, has a, such a special settlement history, but you know, it, it was through kind of immigration, you know, with like a senior housing center, but through the Catholic church, much more specifically too, as to mm -hmm. how a lot of those folks came. And those folks were also folks who came from communities in North Vietnam, and then in like 54 settled in South Vietnam, you know, as Catholic communities. Right. And then, you know, after 1975, we're kind of recruited as these Catholic Vietnamese American communities to go to New Orleans East, specifically in the New Orleans area. And so there, I stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, excuse me, Mike, that was a, okay. Um, and you so- You stuck out like a sore thumb? Yeah, I, I stuck out like a sore thumb because I'm, I have a Southern Vietnamese accent when I speak Vietnamese and folks there have a very specific Northern Vietnamese accent. Um, I'm, I, I also, it's just such a close knit community. It's like everybody knows who everybody is, you know, living within like these multiple blocks of each other. Like, and, and it's still one of the most clustered Vietnamese American communities I've ever been to over little Saigon, over other places, wow. you know, like it's like, it's just concentrated and everyone knows each other. Everyone knows whose kids are whose, you know? And so like, I was clearly very much not from that community, but they really welcomed me, you know, because, um, you know, at that point, like people could use whatever help and I wasn't coming in being like, I know what to do and, you know, but I was just like, what do you all need? And then also, you know, I have certain skills to be mm -hmm. able to, you know, draft these things and, you know, like to help organize this and that. And, um, you know, I, I tried to be as humble as I can coming into a community like that because, you know, at that point they were also like scattered all across like the South and other parts of the country as well, because there was like no electricity. Wow. Everybody's house had been flooded in New Orleans East for like a month. And so, you know, when all that goes down, it's not like anything's really salvageable. You have to tear everything out. It wasn't like it got flooded and then the floodwaters receded, yeah. which is what it did. And, you know, the French Quarter and other places too, you know, but it was just the way the levees were like New Orleans East was just a fishbowl for, for weeks. Um, and so it was to kind of see how people were making do and how they, how the church, which, you know, I didn't really go to a lot, but went to a lot of mass, um, when I was there, cause that was sort of the central organizing mm -hmm. body, 
where people can learn about any news, you know, or they can get access to resources because, you know, other folks like the Red Cross and other people knew too, like, you know, if you like want to provide services, you can like post up here and then people will know where you are, you know, and then they'd have like the big water tanks too, because water needed to be delivered. And so, um, you, you grew up so, Buddhist, no. right? What's up? You grew up Buddhist? I did. Yeah. I did. And, and um, I asked that because it's, it's a very different culture. Northern 54 Buddhist, uh, Catholics are just, it's a different, my mom is from that uh, corner of the world and Southern Buddhist, it's a different sort of way of thinking. And my father comes from, you know, that, you know, so it's a, it's a they're very different cultures and um, it's almost like the, the American North and the American South. Yeah. And it's, and I didn't really actually even understand it very much until I was like in it. You know, but I happened to be in it at a time when I think people were just like, you want to help? You're an extra set of helping hands and you're not an asshole. Like, come on down. You know, like, I don't know that I would have been embraced quite like that. Um, Coming in Otherwise, cold. but it was yeah. just like there are times that give you perspective on what's really important and what the real priorities are, you know. Um, but I spent a few months there and then I went to, to um, work in East Biloxi which is where the eye, closer to where the eye of the storm actually went through. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was like the level of destruction there was just for blocks. Like it's just like, just completely demolished. Instead of these structures are still standing, but you see the lines is like, just, you know, and there's, and I've always been that person who's like, okay, well, all this media attention and nonprofit and foundation attention is being all paid in New Orleans. And it was very important to me to kind of go to area on the news, but I knew it was suffering or knew had things, issues that, you know, I could help with. And at that point, um, being bilingual and bicultural was probably the most important time it's ever been for me and ever, you know, before yeah. that and since is that having that bicultural bilingual ability um, created these conditions where I was somehow more uniquely positioned to be able to kind of like help bring these things, these different people together, you know, at that time. And, um, and there, you know, they had a church. They also had a temple in Biloxi. And, um, you know, folks were there for more, I think, economic reasons as to that pattern of settlement because it was near like oyster factories and it was like the shrimping industry, which people in New Orleans did as well, like, you know, part, part of the economics. But but it, it just didn't have as much of like, like that history of settlement all the way from like, before 1954 and um and i was like basically adopted by this like vietnamese family when i was there and i like lived in their house um and you know they knew i was queer and that was fine and it was just like three sisters and the mom and the dad and then one of the sisters had a kid so it was just like it's just like and the dad wasn't around a lot so it was just like all of us women you know and they mm. were and, and, um, and, you know, I, they still call me sister. I still call them sister. We still keep in touch. And, um, and, and I, I just, 
you know, you feel, I just felt very much seen, you know, it's like, this you is know, like the so first kind of group of people of all Vietnamese people that I've spent time with outside of my own family. And they're just it's like, so ironic so listening to this story because it's like, you would think the West Coast and with all of our progressive sort of our nature in on the West Coast, you, you would feel more <laughs> at home, right? Or, you know, or seen or not othered, right? But in this, uh, enclave of Vietnamese, uh, I, I would imagine they're very conservative, uh, if they're church going people. And, you know, I can imagine them asking intrusive questions like, you know, you know, these questions yeah. that Vietnamese <laughs> people ask, you know, and, and how did they, how did they make you feel so connected even to this day being conservative Catholics and, and, you know, well, going the to family mass. I lived with were Buddhist, just to be clear in Mississippi, mm. but you know, in, um, I just think that when you're faced with these other priorities that, that sort of like the, the sin of being queer sort of becomes more like these other, I don't know, like a lesser sin. I don't even know Catholicism enough. Yeah. Buddhism. Like really I think the Buddhist Vietnamese are different than the Catholic Vietnamese. They're just more Catholic Vietnamese. Yeah. Are more and, pressing and so, with these. but even like, you know, the, yeah, like the father of the church at that time, Mary Queen of Vietnam, um, no, he was very accepting of me, you know, and it meant a lot to me, mm. you know, um, and, and I think sometimes you see somebody in a leadership position where people come to consult with them on so many different things and then to have somebody like that just be like okay like it's not like he's saying like oh yeah it's totally acceptable but it was also not unacceptable it was just like okay like this is a part of you and you know and you're working with us and you know we're going to work together and get these things done because this is what we need to do. And it, it was um, kind of that was the attitude. And and to be quite honest, the Southern hospitality thing we all hear about, it's so true. Really? You know, it's like it's like you go there and people are just like, we're going to take you fishing and then we're going to cut this stuff and then we're going to bring two ducks so that we can do, you know, like this Vietnamese pizza thing where like you cook Good one duck like the organs and everything and then the other one is you have to get the fresh blood from another duck and then and so that settles and then you eat it like with bánh tráng you know like first time in my life I'd ever had that dish it was delicious but you need like two ducks to do that you know it's like a two duck game <laughs> and so it's like and 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 you know just just really just being like, oh, you need a place to stay? Just just come live with us for nine months or more. You know, like that's just beautiful. Fine. Yeah. You know? And so so yeah, I I I think that um I I think that I felt very, very embraced and in return when I left that experience um after a little over a year and I came back. Um, it really set my trajectory of mm -hmm. being like. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I want to apply. I wanted to do um, a dual degree city planning, which I didn't even know existed until Hurricane Katrina, when all of these city planners, many of them really fucked up, like uh, messed up how you're supposed to kind of go in and work with communities and not just look at topography maps and economic trends. Um, and um, instead of like talking to real people, you know, and, and I felt like I didn't realize how much these people had a role in, in dictating the ways that we live, you know, both through design, both through economic policies, both through um, channeling where resources go, both through um, creating prioritized priorities for government. And so, so then I was just like fascinated by that as a career pathway after that, you know, because it sort of brought together these very disparate parts yeah. of my brain in a way and sort of like integrates it into not just the built environment, but into kind of like, like policies and, and programs and, and actions. Um, but I still, still held on to that. Like, I don't know, like I still wanted to like a law degree. So I went back and got, took my GREs and my LSATs. Actually, I studied for them while I was still living in the Gulf coast. And so I was driving into new Orleans to like, take like LSAT classes essentially from Biloxi, like every week. Um, but, but then that really sort of like, it was a very formative experience for me, you know, I think seeing so much inequality and seeing it happen to so many different types of people, like the native communities there, um, a lot of like the um, laborers who were brought in after to do the work in such like awful conditions, um, you know, not, not to mention that the public, the private utility company wouldn't turn on the electricity for the community in New Orleans East until they could prove they had enough people coming back. Cause, and it was like, like you're a utility, like you're, you're like an essential service. You can't just like decide you don't want to turn on, turn back on the grid. Cause you don't know if you're going to be able to make money. Like people aren't going to come back without electricity. You know, like just, just, it was really like, there were so many things that were made very clear to me yeah. in the Gulf Coast of like how decisions are made and how people are the ones that make them and how the priorities of those people are often not aligned with the best interest to the people who live in those communities, you know? And 
um, that was made abundantly clear to me um, during my time. And so, um, so anyways, I came back and I like did all this and then I applied to these different schools. Um, but um, I was accepted into MIT's city planning program, um, which and MIT does not have a law school. And so I, I applied to other dual degree programs that I got accepted into, but um, I really wanted to go there because of you know, the reputation they have of working, you know, using a lot of different types of technologies, but also um, different types of analysis, but also kind of like certain professors known to kind of like really want to do stuff like on the ground, mm -hmm. you know, and in community and alongside with, and um, to collaborate and to innovate. Um, and I was also, I also got, a scholarship there where um where then i also got like a graduate student research stipend as well as like the scholarship to be able to attend um which to me was like mind-blowing because yeah. you know the thought of the thought of being able to graduate from a program without being like in a huge debt. student debt meant that i could do things that maybe I couldn't imagine I could do before because I wouldn't need to make the type of money. You know, I really feel for people who like kind of have a lot of student debt, like it just, gosh, you know what I mean? Like how it, it impacts so many other decisions you make after that. But anyway, so that, that, that was sort of the trip from the Gulf Coast to the city planning program at MIT. You know, one of my major questions, and it's hard for me to ask this question because I don't know how to articulate it correctly or like pinpoint the the, the way, but the, the, the question is basically this. Uh, you have gone through a sort of a journey from the Gulf Coast to MIT to where you are today, and you could see the different uh, pain points in managing a city, a restaurant, a community, and these decisions are made by human beings and these human beings have different uh these different buttons that you push so they can gain right and so it's like this sort of game that we play uh between the haves and the have-nots now on an amazon level company there's a lot of this crazy shit happening and it's happening in ways that are destroying it, the fabric of society as we speak right now it's really deteriorating the, the 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 fabric of human beings i think on a on a way that you know humanity has never seen before is there a way just your opinion that we can unfuck this <laughs> that's the best way i can ask that's, the question you know is there a way that we can unfuck this is such a good question i'm just going to like write that one down keep it in my pocket um i i mean i it's so crazy right like of, of like all the ways in which i thought maybe the 2020s were gonna go like it's been such a wild ride you know and like um i 
I think that we're always going to be struggling to try to unfuck stuff, you know? And I think there's um, a very human need to interact with people and to show care, um, whether these sort of like large corporations that monopolize our money and our time and our labor, um, whether it means that like we lose connection to each other, we lose the ability to benefit from each other and not just toil for it all to kind of go elsewhere, like whether like money and resources and um, attention can be recycled within kind of local communities. I, 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 that's, I think where restaurants come in. I, I think that's kind of what restaurants aren't the only solution, you know, something to make these decisions on what they're going to eat. And they have to do it like every day. They have to do it like multiple times a day, you know, and um, it like food in Vietnam, like street food, it becomes this place where different people kind of come together or even if they don't come together they they see somebody else post something on social media you know and it kind of like reminds them of their culture reminds them of comfort and it it um is why i'm so attracted to this like having kind of done these other like things like worked for larger like universities and labor organizations and social justice organizations and dealing on such these kind of like macro levels with the California Public Utilities Commission and the California Energy Commission and, and all of these acronyms, you know, I felt like my path was to kind of apply these values, but to kind of do it in a space that would produce every day, you know, that would create a place where somebody can go and get something every day and it's something that they need every day to get to the next day and it would be something that's affordable so that different types of people can come that's why i love street food so much vietnamese street food is you just go there at night and you just see like the kids and they're sitting on the stool and like somebody maybe in a suit or something that looks very uncomfortable because it's too humid to be wearing a suit sitting down and then you know some other people and then somebody comes by with like a karaoke machine you know and it's, it's like it's just like that vibe i will never forget and and i hope never goes away you know and and i think that's that's sort of like it's not the anti-amazon but it is the on the other pole of what that like total monopolization and automation of life could look like or like just like when you're just like in front of a screen all the time is like to try to create space for that other pull where people have places that they can access that they can return to regularly in real life and that gives them like real food for comfort so that we're not just taking like food pills i don't know if food pills will be a thing in the future you know but like oh it's already this, here this, yeah dystopian mm -hmm. yeah exactly like these kind of dystopian ways of which like we're going to become just totally disconnected from each other and become cogs that i think restaurants are a place where we can prioritize so that 
our humanity is valued, <laughs> you know, and, and our bodies are, are used for, uh, you know, to kind of get to the next day, but, but also it's eating is a very pleasurable experience, you know, eating and drinking and sharing food, I think is basically what most of my family did uh, when we couldn't really talk about the hard topics, you know? So, well. That's a great answer uh, because it's, um, you know, I always think, I think I'm, I'm, I live in brackish water uh, when it comes to like capitalism and, and community and, you know, so I have one foot out, one foot in, but <laughs> the, the feet are constantly, you know, doing a dance, trying to figure out which, which way to go because of my capitalist uh, background, you know, factories and, and restaurants and, and still in the food business and trying to figure out how does this all play out and, and how to kind of get away from the Amazon model, because I think it really is destructive. I, I do on some level. It's like, I just know my heart. This is not the right. This is not the right direction for humanity. It can't be, you know, I ordered some headphones uh, yesterday morning and in the afternoon I got them. And I was like, oh my God, this feels so good, but it feels so wrong. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. so wrong. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you know, like how long are we gonna like spend like, it's like, there are like so many fires to put out all the time. And you know, when you like run a business, you they're like literally, like a food business, they're like literally fires to put out. <laughs> and then there's like figurative ones, like metaphorical ones, I guess. Um, maybe it can like be a part of these menu options, but that we don't let it take over our lives. Um, but that we also try to address the conditions of work, you know, at places like Amazon, um, where it's like, how do you get this shit done in this amount of time? Is it because people aren't able to take proper breaks or that people aren't able to like interact as human beings, you know, or because, you know, your like your supply chain stuff is like impacting the environment in these like messed up ways, you know, like, so I think it's, it's like, I see that this has happened and I'm using it for convenience because I'm putting out fires on my own, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like there's no accountability for a company like that, you know, in terms of the treatment of its workers, the treatment of the environment and then the treatment of competitors, you know? Yeah. There's so many uh, topics that I really want to get into, and I'm going to find a way to get them all in right now. <laughs> There's so many. I like, I'm looking at my list. I'm like, I haven't even gone over 80% of the stuff that I wrote down, you know, the electrical. How do we unfuck this? Was that your last question? <laughs> yes. that was great <laughs> you know, I got to, I got to wake people up every now and then, you know, <laughs> I can't just keep this formal sort of. I've been accused of being uh, boring sometimes because I keep it straight. But people who really know me, like when we ran into each other at the pool hall, I was like, yeah. you know, this is how I am. Like I'm yeah. like a bubbly guy and I like I, I get excited about things. And sometimes being on this podcast doesn't allow me to do that because I, you know, the interviews are s sort of serious with serious people. But I want to like I want to use bad language and, and curse and, you know, and be myself all the time. 
So uh, then I hope that this next few minutes we'll, we'll, we'll get into that because I want to uh, talk about um, there's three things more that I want to talk to re- really, uh, which is the electrical, uh, the union stuff. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is your fascination with pool. That was like the strangest thing to me because, you know, we met each other uh, a few days before that at at at, uh, at Baowin's, uh, Songkai, uh, the gin event, which that's another thing that I wanted to talk about. It is your relationship with Daniel Wynn from some guy at, in the Gulf Coast. So there's all these things uh, that I want to talk about. And then there's the, the triple bottom line uh, thing with the social justice, economic justice and environmental st- sustainability. These are things that I really want to touch on and, and talk about. And um, so why don't we why don't we first talk about your your fascination with pool? Because I, I feel like we're like in this energetic stage and I want to it's so random to bump into you at a pool um, hall in LA. I started at a young age. Um, yeah, because, you know, in Vietnam, we call it BIA. Yeah, and yeah. people have no pockets. It's like the three balls, you know, and I'm a nerd in this way in that, like, I, I'm like a nerd, but I like the physicality of things. You know, I, I'm like an applied nerd. I think that's why I like cooking as well. Um, but just from then, like, I... I grew up and my uncle had a pool table, you know, and um, in, in America. And um, and while I didn't play it that much, it was always like fascinating to me. But I, I love being in an environment where you have like something to do and, and, and sort of like there's competition, but there's also like all this strategy. And then you meet these like old cats or older cats who've been doing this a long time who tell you stories about you know betting on pool games and like um different types of shots like like shots that angles people can see ways in which things spin in one way to hit another like this is like physics like gosh what is it called like like how spheres move through space this is like astrophysics essentially but it's pool on a table because these spheres are kind of hitting each other and colliding in different ways, depending on the angle and dependent. And so there's just, and it's so frustrating because I can understand all that, but if my body doesn't cooperate, mm-hmm. you know, then I don't make it. And it's like a very clear sort of like, you did it or you didn't, you know, and then did you get the right lead for the next shot? And are you really thinking ahead multiple shots and, and, and just being around people who think like that and who are just very good. It's very humbling. I'm not very good at pool. I'm just like, well, really let me, let me, let me tell the story of this situation. Cause this is <laughs> all very strange when you really think about it, you and me. So I never, I don't go out like that. I don't go out to bars, you know, that's just, yeah, I'm a, a different place. I have two kids and my wife and I, never go out to these things but she likes pool a lot more than i do and i kind of grew up around a a billiard we had a family friend who had a billiard and we would come over as a family to eat food at the billiard they had yeah they would just serve us food and we would sit at the table and eat food as kids and we just play a little bit but that's my extent of playing pool so we get a call i get a call and you know these two dan jung and dan va you know these two friends of mine asked me to come play pool and i'm like this is so strange but i thought it was like actually at a pool hall and i told my wife and we we had we have kids and 
They went to bed and we went out to play. But we show up to Little Joy and Little Joy, right? And we show up to Little Joy. And I was like, I've been here before many, many years ago. This is not a pool hall. <laughs> so I walk in and it's like, well, it's a bar that happens to have one pool table. And it's all these yep. guys playing pool. And I'm like, we put our name up on the board. I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to make it a night of hanging out with the two Dans, right? And then, you know, we're about to leave. And I'm like, I want to play. I, you know, it, it was my turn. My name was on the board. So I go over to the board and I look at the board and I see win. I see a name of Vietnamese. And I'm like, that's strange. I didn't know any. I didn't see anything. I didn't. I just saw your name on the board. <laughs> And literally when I looked at the name and I turned over to my left, you were standing right there. I was like, this is the most bizarre, <laughs> bizarre like thing that ever happened to me in the universe of like bizarreness. And you were standing there and, um, you know, days before that we had, you know, hung out at, at, at Bao Nguyen's house. Uh, but it all comes together because, um, you know, we talked about coming on the podcast and, you know, this whole idea of a pool. Now we're talking about it and now understanding more of how your connection with Daniel Wynn is from the Gulf Coast. So that is like the segue, but it's like weird how all of these things sort of tie in and the universe is just, it's a very strange place when you start to kind of roll in the direction that you're meant to roll into, you know, and I feel like the work that I do has been like that from day one, you know, just these things like the winds of the world show up at the pool halls that I'm <laughs> showing up to. And everybody is so interconnected, no matter where, what corner of the world they're, they're on. And, you know, I, I'm starting to discover that there are people that live 15 minutes from me who all of my friends know about and I've never heard their name and then vice versa. My friends have told me about people and this Vietnamese community, uh, the diaspora is a lot more connected than we can ever imagine. Yeah. Agreed. We're everywhere. We're yeah. just like, just, just like in very random places too. Yeah. To just sort of like stick around and build a life. And now, you know, and 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 now I want to ask you about uh, Daniel Wynn and how you met him. And it's strange that both of you are basically in the food business now. Yeah, um, I go back with Daniel a very long time, and um, you know I I was involved with a group of progressive Vietnamese Americans. This was like in the mid, like. 2000s when um you know the the politics in mainstream like vietnamese america was still it's still conservative but it's much more um how do i say this it was much less welcoming to other perspectives you know um and and so we just started to kind of self-organize and do kind of these like stuff where we would like organize in different places across the country and just like it was, it was to tell you the truth some of it was talking about issues some of it was talking about like potentially things we could do but a lot of it was just like freaking group therapy you know <laughs> like all of us just sitting around just like hella traumatized peoples quite um sorry i'm back my phone was telling me i have 10 percent left so no worries. 
Um, but, you know, we're just sitting around and it's just like, you know, sometimes you sit in your trauma um, and you can't talk about it to anybody because you can't talk to your family and you can't talk to other people in the Vietnamese community because you haven't necessarily found people who share, you know, some of your views or you feel like you're at risk if you say it out loud, so you just keep it inside. And, um, but anyways, through, through this process, um, we started a school called the Hai Ba Trung School for Organizing, um, of which, um, like, uh, Daniel was a participant. Now I'm trying to remember if he was, I'm pretty sure he's a participant in this, by the way. Now I'm like, is this story true? I think it is, <laughs> I think it is. And then from there um, was when, um, he learned about, you know, the work that was happening in New Orleans East. There was another student conference. Now I have like my thing mixed up, but, but, um, but essentially the Hypergen School for Organizing is three days where, you know, we get young people to kind of like talk about like what it feels like to work in the Vietnamese community, but also to, you know, um, develop organizing skills. But anyways, um, fast forward, he goes to the Gulf Coast, um, to New Orleans to work. And, um, you know, he helped to start their um, hydroponics co-op where, you know, these backyard farms that people had anyways and were thriving, you know, they would like have a cooperative where like multiple families would go to one house and kind of build this stuff out. And then he would um, build uh, connections with vendors and uh, not vendors, like be a vendor to restaurants in like the French Quarter and other places of these like amazing products. And then he would help to set the pricing so that, oh. you know, it would be um, something that could create economic value because, you know, the tendency is to undersell or, or to price lower um, you know, out of backyard farms out in New Orleans East. Um, but, you know, he understand the value of, you know, the quality of what was being produced. So he would go and kind of negotiate these prices with restaurants in, you know, the French Quarter and other kind of like fancy pants restaurants in New Orleans, which is like, you know, like the food capital or one of them of the United States. And, um, and I, I just, you know, I, I was just like, wow, this person's really, you know, committed to kind of doing these multiple things at the same time and very innovative. Um, and then Daniel moved to Vietnam for years, you know, and, and, um, and then he sort of started distilling in his apartment, you know, and doing these things. And when, by the time I'd gotten to visit him in 2019, he he still had these little stills around, but he just built out kind of like the wow. main site and he was just lighting up the large still for the first time when I was there. But, you know, I'd see the, the ways in which he developed all of these relationships and been able to go to all of these different places. And like, I see him, he's distilled all of these different like botanicals and fruit peels and other things from my culture, from our culture that I'd never seen anybody do. And, and to put it into a product like gin, you know, or like 
was working on whiskeys and other things at that point too, is to like put it into these things that seem so like not Vietnamese, quote unquote. But when you taste it, you're just like, this is, this is the, this is like, um, this is the taste of our earth. You know, like this is the taste of like our special plants that grow here and and like I feel that and so I'm just and then you know like and from there that was 2019 and then fast forward a few years they're like distributing globally and I'm just like oh my gosh like what what a great sort of inspiration you know to like have this drive to build something from your Hanoi apartment essentially to build these other factories like up from scratch like from from like needing to clear the land all the way to getting the building erected all the way to getting everything in and then you know like working with these different communities and then working with a great staff as far as i can tell much smaller than i'm sure now you know and and then now like we're just all so damn proud of it right like i, I like every vietnamese person i meet who's like knows about this distillery is just so damn proud you know that like it's like our stuff and it's in there and it tastes amazing and it's like being recognized for what it is you know you know when when i was uh first starting out with the podcast i've had multiple people tell me they sh that i should get daniel on you know like many different uh from all over the world would tell me you should get this guy on and then you know i had a pre-interview call with him and i was like oh my god this guy's super fascinating and then i get get him on and we talk and we talk and you know it's like I, I didn't taste the gin at the time and i just listened to the essence of the intent of what he was going for and you realize that there's something very special about daniel and it shows up in the product and it becomes like this thing where what you just said it's like the flavor profiles is the essence it comes from the earth and where we come from that yeah. flavor profile and it's not just that but it's like the visual branding the, the artwork the history the everything that comes from the even etymology of his um the brand uh some guy is all so well thought out and yeah the beauty of all of this is uh, that I remember you telling me at the um, at some guy uh, when we had it at Bowen's place where you said, oh, I've known this guy for 16 years. And and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, it could go two ways. It could be like, oh, they just touch bases and they kept up in from high school or whatever. Or, you know, who knew who knows who knows or they really have like this, you know, history coming out of the Gulf Coast. And today hearing the two histories overlap because Daniel's come on the show before. And uh, I, I understand like the, the the world of the Vietnamese diaspora is just becoming to me more and more rich as as the as the time goes on, because, you know, you we exist in different sectors you know, some are in film, some are in food, some are in music, and we don't get to overlap quite often. But now it's becoming more um you know yeah. people are just they're collaborating more uh across different disciplines and you know we see histories that come from 12 15 years before are beginning to overlap a whole lot more now yeah 
yeah, it's, I, I think there's a special bond between us and, and maybe there are things that have like kept us apart, you yeah. know, in these ways, because um, there weren't maybe as many examples that we saw, but like we get to kind of like co-create this like new future as the Vietnamese diaspora together um, and, and doing things as part of this like changing world anyways, you know, and like, we're like a, I think all people are resilient people. I think we've had multiple opportunities to prove our resilience, you know, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And and I think that um, there's something about that that bonds us together. And, and, and I find special community when I meet a Vietnamese person that's trying to do this or trying to do that, you know, it's, there is sort of like a, sisterhood, brotherhood, siblinghood, for whatever it's worth yeah. of being like, all right, you know, and then like when I came to Hanoi, like I'd never been there on a food related thing. And Daniel and you like took me around mm -hmm. and just um, showed me like the coolest, most interesting bars, like the street food places I really needed to hit up, you know, like just, just like, brought me into there so that I could feel part of this kind of Northern Vietnamese. Like we just compared all these words that I did not know, not because I don't speak Vietnamese, but because I'm, I don't speak kind of that Northern thing, you know? And, and, um, and, and that's something that we've like continuously done with each other over the years, you know, it's just like checked in, even though we're like, we're always living thousands of miles apart like that's always except for a few moments in our life we've always yeah. lived thousands and thousands of miles apart but we're still going to be connected you know fascinating yeah so this idea of the triple bottom line um is that something you came up with or is it just uh out there and you just brought it into took it from the ether and just brought it into your lexicon i um I did not come up with that. Um, and I, not that phrase, but I've, I've always felt drawn, you know, like when somebody is like, oh, well, we have to focus on, on this. And I'll be like, well, um, I'm sorry. Hello? Yeah. So I thought I put it on do not disturb, but I think my mom has special. Yeah. But. Got it. Okay. <laughs> um, I didn't come up with the triple bottom line phrase, but it is always the way my mind has worked and it um validated me i think mm. when i learned it um is that i always felt like people felt this need to like uncomplicate issues in order to work on them but by doing that i think we um can't actually get things done because things are complicated and they involve multiple priorities and multiple interests. And if we can't 
learn how to clearly look at these different interests and priorities and try to get it all done at the same time. We don't have enough time to just like, let's work for 20 years on social justice and not think about economic justice and not think about the environment. Like that's just like, to me was an impossible task, but felt like that was like the way people were kind of going through it in a lot of ways, like in these different silos, you know? thinking, well, if I work on this and somebody works on that and somebody else works on that, then together it'll all get done. And and it just was not get all getting done. You know, like things like, like we're very much not anywhere near where we need to be in order to address the current climate problems we have and the sort of major issues that are now coming to a head, you know? Um, our economics are so skewed in ways that people who have the least cannot access opportunities where they can kind of get out of this. And then people who have more are able to just, you know, dominate more, elevate themselves and dominate. And then, you know, we live in a society that is still sexist, that's still racist, that still discriminates against queer people and trans people, that still discriminates against people based on their immigration status, you know, that, um, and, and these, and this is connected to the economics and this is connected to climate in ways that, you know, folks who like live in places with high levels of pollution tend to be people of, lower income and often immigrant or, um, you know, like black, brown, Native American, like API communities. There's all this discrimination against like a API people and harassment that I've experienced multiple times in my own life. But, you know, now the media is paying more attention to it, you know, and and we live in a world now that's also like totally integrated from a communication standpoint that makes all of this even more confusing because it's like you see all of it happening at once and then what do you do about it? And I was just trying to find a framework where I can at least like fit these pieces together and talk to people about like, what are programs we can do? You know, what are ways that we can connect these different interest groups together so that we can fight for the same policies and these policies cannot just be like good jobs that are green jobs but also accessible to communities who often haven't had this type of access and, and so that kind of like work around environment but environmental justice to be specific connected to connected to local communities is really um something where, where I felt like, okay, this is a space where I can like bring like what I always felt were these issues that were of priority together and try to do something with folks who may not have always worked together, but really feel compelled to now. Cause like, sort of like, this is, this is the new reality. We can't just be in our silos. We can't just do one thing at a time anymore. And do you feel at, your restaurant, this uh, ecosystem um, is working. The triple bottom line idea, because it sounds like it's a work in progress. It's something that it's a model that you're building. Do you feel like you're making um, progress in this uh, direction? 
I, I do. And then, you know, like, I'm still trying to get all the numbers to balance out. And then, you know, the, then there are always like external factors, right? That's, that's sort of the thing is like everything, almost all my inventory costs 20 to 50% more now than it did even when I opened, you know, which was just a little over a year ago, you know? Um, and then it's sort of like these waves of, you know, Delta after I opened and then Omicron and then all of these other things. So you're like, you, you have this model, right? Like this, these ideals, these goals, and then you just like contending with like staffing shortages, supply chain issues, um, needing to increase prices, but still not know if it's enough. And then I'm just like learning to operate my first business period, you know, like, mm. you know, and so wow. it's sort of like my own capacity to be able to kind of meet these goals is not where it needs to be in order to do that. So it's certainly a work in progress, but at the same time, it's like, for me, like if I'm going to spend like 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week on anything, you know, I'm going to spend it on this, like, because I'm passionate about it. And I feel like even if it's like not working the way I want it to, I'm still, I'm still like creating economic opportunities for people. I'm still employing like 10 people, paying them decent wages with pulled tips. And, and even if like in the larger kind of like, is this a model and can it be like, you know, adopted by other people, like at the end of the day, I'm still like making affordable food. I'm still creating comfort. I'm still helping these people support themselves and their own families. You know, I've been doing it for over a year. So in that case, like, I think there's, a lot of successes to be pointed at, but I think I have a long way to go to kind of, when I put my city planning hat on, you know, to, to have a model that other people can adopt, but it's not a plug and play thing. So I feel like at least in the ways where I feel like the values that I bring to the business have created an impact, at least on some people in the industry and some people outside of it, then, um, then yeah, like I'm, I'm, just the ability to like have this conversation with you and have had like other conversations with other people to have some articles written about this, to have folks approach me and be like, I really support what you're doing. Or like, you know, I have people like handwrite me letters with like a check, like, like $50, $100 here, take this. Like, and, and, you know, like when I receive something like that, it's like, it's like, yeah, there's, there's an impact there. You know, you kind of like start, impacting individuals you start impacting a conversation and whether like your specific business is the model it's like maybe it inspires other people to act in the food industry or other industries and and i hope that from an impact level that even though like this model is nowhere near where i want it to be to be sustainable and probably going to take another year or two for me to even really know quite honestly, you know, because there's so many other factors involved that I think there's been some impact of just entering these things into the conversation at a time where people are listening because of the pandemic and because of the other disruptions that are happening anyways, as people are trying to look at new ways or different ways of doing these things that have existed for millennia, food businesses, you know? When I hear your answer, I 
I draw upon my own experience and how difficult it was for a guy who's all about making the money and you know I never thought about the worker's point of view and you know just coming up the way my mom and dad did it you know it's just uh very basic and you know we're just trying to make as much profit as we can without thinking about society and um the answer that you just gave me uh gives me hope uh in humanity because it's not like you're just trying to you know add um some some uh accents some garnish to the business model of uh you know sustainability for for uh the social sustainability of this but you're really thinking about this like from an integrated uh perspective and it's not just this is superficial work that you're doing i think it's somebody you, at your level where you really understand it from a technical perspective on how to make this work and it gives me um a whole lot of hope because it doesn't feel to me like you're doing this it doesn't feel like you're doing this for uh let's see if this model works it's like no no let's let's do it and whatever is spun off of it information wise inspiration wise uh the model you know we can we can we can take parts and bits of of what you've learned and start to improve society and be inspired by improving the world around us so it's a it's just a it's a one of a kind person like you that could bring that because I'm going to take this idea and, and, you know, maybe integrate a little bit, a point here to, uh, you know, let me raise the wages for my guys a little bit. and But I'm not thinking of, of like a holistic societal uh, perspective the way you do. And I think that's like, that makes all the difference in the world. Well, thank you. It's, it's kind of like the way my mind has always mm. worked, you know, and, and this is a small enough project initiative for me to be able to make decisions on that and kind of like tinker with it in a way you know and and a lot of people out there are doing this and and like you know they don't I'm, I'm just discovering that like I somehow now have more of a platform to talk about these things you know but but I think people are always like trying to do this you know and and i think more and more people are like gonna continue to figure out like how do we get to a point where like we can make money treat people decently build community and not mess up our environment you know like you, it's, you know it's, uh it's it's hard it's a hard day and age to come to terms with numbers like okay so 1965 we were ceo pay was 20 to 1 on the average salary worker right 20 to 1. today it's 350 to 1. now uh people with an education and people with an understanding on how these models are predicated on will go into business thinking okay i might not get 350 to 1 because i don't run a tech company but on a restaurant level, at least I should be getting 50 to one with the education from MIT or whatever, right? Like, I'm just saying like on a basic level, somebody's like, I'm smart. I should be getting the 50 to one because I lead these things and I, I could be making more, potentially making more money. And I think that's sort of like the trap that we as this, um, you know, modern society, we're falling, we've fallen into. We're like, 
you know, we, we, we go, okay, well, they're making 350 to one at the tech level. Well, at least on the restaurant level, like a successful restaurant, we should be getting 50 to one. And then so that distorts the way that people go into these business models. We don't tame it down. We don't clamp down on our expectations or what we're doing for society. We're just like, how can we gouge, you know, this free market? And I think that's the conversation that is hard to have, even for a guy like me. I like I'm like adjacent, woke adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm woke adjacent, but my muscles. Slightly yeah. sleepy. Like, <laughs> yes, slightly sleepy. You know, woke adjacent, and but my muscles can't carry out the reps. I just can't do it because I come from this like old school, sleepy, slightly sleepy, no, no, heavily sleeping mentality. And it's it's very hard to change the way I look at it because it's just ingrained in me. And I just want to progress in the way that I'm profiting more, right? Not helping society more, I, you know, and it's just like, it's getting worse every day, I feel. I, I mean, I, I didn't, I wouldn't think that about you or quite honestly, like anybody, I think a lot of people out there are just trying to just do things, you know, and like kind of like support their families and live to the next day. And then they're following these like examples of what they've seen before, you know, and then, and so so yeah, it's like hard for me to even like, you know, a lot of people tell me I need to like be better at like promoting myself and like what we do, but but I think it's like something about like the ways people find you and become attracted to certain ideas. Um, and once they do that, they adapt they internalize it and adopt it more. Mm. Whereas if I feel like I'm out there like proselytizing like this stuff and being like, you should do this, you should do that. Like, just like people don't want to be told what they should right. be doing or not be doing. But I feel like through kind of just like doing what I'm doing, sharing why we're doing what we're doing. More sticky. You know, sharing the values, sharing the mission is how I think of like, it sort of attracts people to it. And then that's how they sort of internalize it and adopt it and want to apply it in their own lives. You know, and, and maybe that's a slower moving thing and maybe ain't nobody got the time for that, but at least yeah. like a little bit, a year into doing what I'm doing now, you know, like I, I see us having this conversation, you know, like, and, and I see that it's sort of like, people have their own journeys of kind of getting to the places where they feel like how they want to live their values and express them in their lives through all of the different things they do, whether in their business, with their families, you know, with their friends, like mm -hmm. in their community. And, um, and I think a part of it is really like, just like getting us on the same, like similar levels of like okay what are our values and what are our priorities and it's not even about food anymore you right. know and that's really the conversation that i love to like have with people and like i over explain on that stuff sometimes you know being like this is like what it's about you know like 
the deeper stuff about like treating people decently, about providing them with enough resources to support themselves and their families and to be able to like have like fresh and flavorful food that is from like my culture that I'm very proud of that I don't want people to misunderstand and I don't want it to be um, watered down to a certain extent, you know? So I gotta like stand up for it. You know, uh, listening to you talk the last two hours, um, I think about like right now, how amazing the journey of like where we are sitting right now you're not having a conversation, but the early days of this husband and wife, they were like cooking out of their house. And I was called and I've known this husband and wife for a long time before they started this thing out of their backyard or their apartment building. And I rolled into it and had the, the wonderful food. Um, it was out of the backyard and was, you know, called their friends over and we ate there and we you know, we had a great time and we would run into different people throughout the city and Wintran and T, right? And uh, I remember, uh, and I had known Win for years before that. And, you know, they did this thing and it was just like, whoa, this is pretty crazy. And then reading about you working um, at Button Mash um, in their kitchen and then, you know, um, knowing Kim from Casilla and, you know, just the kitchens that you've worked for and, you know, these Vietnamese Americans that are the fabric of the Los Angeles community. And it's just like now we're sitting here talking about things that are not even, it's not even like really about the food. It's what you said. It's, it's bigger than that. It's like things that are like um, moving the fabric of, 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 justice i feel like and i want to thank you for that work and thank you for being who you are and and thinking the way you do to to improve um the 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 people that work in 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 your in your world because that it's such an important thing that you do thank you and thank you for what you do too ken it's really it's you know it's so nice to be able to elevate different voices from people in our community and it, it's like brings me a specific it's like a specific source of pride you know when you see these people working across all these different industries and doing these amazing things and then having the opportunity to like kind of sit down and have an in-depth conversation about us as well you know in our community which is this is the first one of its kind I've had since I've opened the restaurant. So that's been really oh, nice. That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad to yeah. be a part of it. And I want to see that trajectory to go from like that apartment building with Wintran and T-Tran, you know, and then it leads up to something like, you know, their button mash kitchen, somebody works there. And then, then that person now is like part of a, a social movement and just the early days of that social movement, you're a year into the, the project that you're working on. And to see where this goes in the next few years is so exciting and hopeful for like humanity on, on not just the Vietnamese community, but like humanity to, to rethink because you could be writing different policies for you know society in a few years based on your experience. And then we can revisit that on a podcast. And, you know, and I got to really hear the roots of like that kind of activism right here. So thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, Wayne, we'll talk soon. All right. Talk soon. Bye, okay. Ken. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. 
The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>